Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Give me my robe. Put on my crown. I have immortal longings in me. Now no more the juice of Egypt's grape shall moist this slip. Now to that name my courage prove my title. I am fire and air. My other elements I give to baser life. So, have you done? Come then, and take the last warmth of my lips. Cleopatra, the last pharaoh of Egypt, immortalised there in the words of William Shakespeare. She was one of the most famous women in all of history. For centuries, she's been presented by writers and artists as a seductive temptress, a femme fatale, the tragic lover of Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. For vilest things become themselves in her, that the holy priests bless her when she is riggish. But who is the real Cleopatra? How true to life are the countless representations in plays, books and films? In this edition of Historical Fiction, history hits Rob Weinberg has been along to Shakespeare's globe. Rob's joined by Farah Karim Cooper, who's Head of Higher Education Research at Shakespeare's Globe, and Diana Preston, author of Cleopatra and Antony. Historical Fiction Before we get to how Cleopatra's been portrayed in countless novels, films, plays, even popular songs, comic books, video games, and a brand of cigarettes, (laughs) set the scene for us. At what point in Egyptian history did Cleopatra live, and... How did Egypt fit in with Rome at this time? Well, Cleopatra comes into the frame in the first century BCE. This is the period of the last years of the Roman Republic. And very early in her life, she saw the impact that Rome was having on Egypt. Because when she was just 14 years old, her father, the then ruler of Egypt, was displaced from his throne by one of his own daughters, And what did he do? He up sticks, went with the young Cleopatra all the way to Rome and asked for Rome's help to put him back upon his throne, which they agreed to do, um, sending some cavalry, one of whose officers was a young man called Mark Antony, (laughs) a bit more later. Um, So very early on, Cleopatra saw, I think, her country's dependence on Rome as the big uh, growing power in the Mediterranean region. Egypt at this time, having been once very powerful, very rich, getting its money from grain and from gold, was in military decline and looking increasingly to Rome for protection, but at the same time not wanting to be swallowed up by Rome as just another Roman province. So it was a very delicate tightrope that Cleopatra and her dynasty were having to walk in this period. So from the outset, what's quite surprising is that Cleopatra wasn't actually Egyptian. No, um, Cleopatra's dynasty was Greek, or to be more precise, Macedonian, 
What had happened was, if you look back to the 4th century BCE, you have the sudden death of Alexander the Great, not long after he'd founded his city of Alexandria. And on his death, his generals immediately embarked on a kind of land grab to take what they could of his empire. And Cleopatra's forebear was a cousin of Alexander and also one of his generals, and he moved in on Egypt. Egypt at this time, having been united under its pharaohs for some 3,000 years, wealthy, well protected to the east and the west by desert, to the north by the Mediterranean. So having moved in there, Cleopatra's dynasty, the Ptolemies, as we should call them, uh, were able to establish themselves, increase their power and grow wealthy and to hold that kingdom all the way through to the first century BCE when Cleopatra comes into the story. So let's fast forward to the time when Cleopatra is ruling Egypt and Julius Caesar arrives. It's interesting when you consider the circumstances which first brought Julius Caesar into contact with Cleopatra because after the death of her father, Cleopatra had been put on the throne of Egypt but expected to co-rule with her younger brother, or one of her younger brothers. Cleopatra's dynasty had adopted the ancient Egyptian tradition of marrying brothers or sisters, so the dynasty was actually based on incest, and she was expected to co-rule with one of her brothers, but the Egyptian courtiers resented the fact that Cleopatra, who was older than her brother-husband, wanted to rule alone, wanted to take power, and ousted her. So she was forced to flee from... Alexandria, and she was therefore without her throne, wondering where to get help. And help arrived in the person of Julius Caesar, who came to Egypt, nothing really to do with Cleopatra at all, but because this was the last years of the civil war that he'd been fighting with his great enemy Pompey. He defeated Pompey at the Battle of Pharsalus. Pompey had fled to Egypt, thinking he'd find help there, been murdered by Egyptian courtiers as he'd stepped ashore. These courtiers had done this thinking that Caesar would be very pleased with them. Caesar, coming to Egypt on Pompey's heels when he found out what had happened, wasn't happy at all. Didn't seem a good idea that people should cavalierly murder important Romans. So he now marched with his legionaries into the royal palace in Alexandria and then said he would mediate in the dispute between Cleopatra and her brother. And that's what would actually bring him face to face with Cleopatra. But having said to Cleopatra and her brother that he would mediate, that they must appear before him, this was a problem for Cleopatra because she was not in Alexandria. She had to find a way of getting into his presence, which is where we get the wonderful stories told by Plutarch and others of how she was perhaps smuggled into the royal palace concealed in a carpet by a Sicilian carpet dealer called Apollodorus. And we have this wonderful image of the Egyptian queen unfurling from a carpet at the feet of Caesar. (laughs) We don't know how she actually got into the palace, but I think somehow she did find, she was very resourceful, she did find a way to get into Caesar's presence, convinced him that she should have the throne, and very quickly, as was reported widely, the two of them had become lovers. For she was a woman of surpassing beauty. And at that time, When she was in the prime of her youth, she was most striking. She also possessed a most charming voice and a knowledge of how to make herself agreeable to everyone. Being brilliant to look upon and to listen to, with the power to subjugate everyone, even a love-sated man already past his prime, she thought that it would be in keeping with her role to meet Caesar. And she reposed in her beauty all her claims to the throne. She asked, therefore, for admission to his presence, and on obtaining permission, 
adorned and beautified herself, so as to appear before him in the most majestic and at the same time pity-inspiring guise. Farah, we hear the story of Cleopatra being smuggled into the royal palace, wrapped in a carpet to have this meeting with Caesar. A lot of Shakespeare's sources would have come from Plutarch. Yes, my understanding of Plutarch as well is that there's a certain amount of fictionalising going on in Plutarch's account. And so by the time Shakespeare's writing this play, you're getting a sort of double fictionalization. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about the actual Cleopatra because it's such a different history than what Shakespeare really gives us. I think his impression of Cleopatra, I think he tries to rescue her from Plutarch a little bit. And he does make the audience, he creates dramatic tension with her character in a way that perhaps you don't necessarily get in the sources. Cleopatra that Shakespeare gives us is, I think, much more multidimensional, but he is also much more interested in her as Egyptian. You were talking about her as actually having Macedonian or Greek heritage, but actually the way I think the Jacobeans saw her, and certainly the way Shakespeare portrays her, is as an Egyptian. And a lot of the language of the play is quite heavily racialized in that way. And it's really fascinating because Shakespeare's creating these binaries. I think that you see the binaries in Plutarch as well between Rome and Egypt, between the public and the oh, private. Very much so, and I think, I think you're absolutely right. And, and that reflects anxiety at the time, particularly in the Roman world, that there was this power. There were stories that power would rise up in the East mm. and would threaten Rome. Yes. And Cleopatra began to be seen as a personification of that. So in a sense, whether she was Macedonian or whether she was Egyptian, didn't matter so much as the fact that she represented a threat to Rome, a, a political threat, an ideological threat, yes. a cultural threat. Yes. And they were very concerned about this, particularly when she did things like call her son that she had by Antony, who's, they gave him the name Alexander, but she added the name Helios mm. to it, the sun, yes. of course associated with the Eastern Mediterranean, the god of the sun. Yeah. And there were these stories circulating in the Roman world mm. of this great power that would rise in the East, and people began to fear Cleopatra because of that. Yes, and I guess that anxiety is rehearsed in this play, and it's rehearsed in a lot of the representations of Cleopatra in this time period. This fear, as you were saying, mm. of the rising power in the East was is something that seems to never go away. Absolutely. <laughs> and it accounts for all this hostility towards her. And then the way that her personality, her character, everything that she achieved was traduced and changed into something else. Yes. Because it wasn't acceptable that there could have been this powerful female political leader in the East yes. that was in any sense a challenge to Rome. Absolutely. You talked about binaries. Shakespeare's language changes register, actually. In Shakespeare, in a way, playing with these polarities, male and female are embodied by Rome and Egypt, masculine and feminine power, pragmatism versus sensuality, reason versus emotion, austerity versus leisure. Yes, yeah, so I think um, Shakespeare certainly is developing these polarities in the play. And it's not just between the private and the public or the exotic and the sober, as it were but it's also in his language, the colors of black and white and the depiction of women. So Octavia is juxtaposed with Cleopatra. The words that describe her are modest, sober. Cleopatra calls her dull at one point. <laughs> of course, yes. Well, evidence suggests that Antony agreed with Cleopatra yes. on that. <laughs> and obviously the language around Cleopatra is all that kind of sensualized language. 
But I think Shakespeare's challenging that because he gives you nuance in the characters themselves. I mean, Antony sort of falls between, Cleopatra even falls between. And I think you do get a sense of the shrewd Cleopatra in Shakespeare's play, the one that actually your book, you say, brings out of her character. Yes, because that does go very much back to Plutarch, I think, doesn't it? Because mm. there's this interesting uh, discussion that Plutarch goes into about how did Cleopatra actually look? For her beauty, as we are told, was in itself not altogether incomparable, nor such as to strike those who saw her. But converse with her had an irresistible charm, and her presence, combined with the persuasiveness of her discourse and the character which was somehow diffused about her behaviour towards others, had something stimulating about it. And he said she wasn't classically beautiful, mm. but she was very clever, witty, mm. shrewd, verbally very dexterous, yes. a match for any man, yes. really. And he said that all these characteristics combined to give, I think he even uses the phrase sex appeal, mm. said she was actually just irresistible because of this combination of things, but her intelligence very much a, uh, an important part of that. But was that not seen as dangerous by Plutarch as well? That notion of her, I suppose it would make her quite manipulative, because the word manipulator comes up in the Renaissance in describing Cleopatra. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think he did perceive her using those skills to manipulate, yeah. um, because he talks about the great catastrophe, doesn't he, that overcame Rome, when Antony at one stage having apparently pushed Cleopatra on one side yeah. and taken Octavia to be his wife, yes. suddenly repudiates Octavia and summons Cleopatra back again. Yeah. And you're right, Plutarch saw that as a disaster for Rome, mm. and I think did perceive Cleopatra as being like the puppet master, cleverly pulling the strings yes. to bring, to lure the good Roman back to her, into, into her toils, yes. if you can use that kind of language. Yeah. She's given this image as this exotic, sultry siren. Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. At one point, uh, Shakespeare says of Antony that a gypsy's lust has turned him into a strumpet's fool, and her entry barge emits such a strange, invisible perfume that the winds and the wharfs are lovesick with them. In truth, did Antony fall head over heels against all reason for Cleopatra? I think that all the evidence we have, the historical evidence, um, suggests that he did. After the assassins of Caesar had been dealt with by Antony and Octavian, what happened was they divided the Roman Empire up between them, and Octavian had taken the West and Antony had taken the East. And it was at that stage that he summoned Cleopatra to him at Tarsus, and she took her time, you know, preparing her arrival, and clearly did create an impact, because all the reports suggest that very soon they were lovers, and she certainly took Antony almost immediately back to Alexandria with her. He stayed there for some time. It was obvious to everybody that she was very soon pregnant with his child, and the only thing which actually took Antony from her side at that stage of their relationship was news that his wife, because he did have a wife back in Rome, had orchestrated a rebellion against Octavian. And so he had to leave Cleopatra and Alexandria, dash back to Rome to sort that out. But uh, clearly from the beginning, I think he'd been absolutely infatuated with her. But she was being politically clever as well, because there were benefits for Egypt, for Rome to become involved in Egypt, and there were benefits for Rome as well. Very much so. I mean, Cleopatra, I think, had a very defined political agenda that Rome was essential to her in achieving, which is basically she wanted to restore Egypt to be as it had been at its period of greatest power. 
She wanted Rome to restore to her various islands and territories that it had owned in the Mediterranean and the Levant, and territories westward into uh, what today we would call Libya. She wanted access to various natural resources. She wanted various political enemies, including one of her own sisters, disposed of by Rome. All of which happened, all of which she got. So in that we see her driving a political bargain on her side, and on Antony's side, I think also there's an, a strongly emotional element to it. He couldn't say no to her. But that's, of course, not to say that as their relationship developed, they were together for 11 years, that on her side there wasn't also love, deep love and commitment. But I suspect the relationship grew on her side, initially out of political motives. Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, Siren of the Nile. Her stunning beauty and notorious intrigue turned the tide of civilization. In attaining her objectives, Cleopatra has been known to employ torture, poison, and even her own sexual talents, which are said to be considerable. So we're very familiar with this image of Cleopatra. I was watching Elizabeth Taylor's entrance before Caesar in the classic film. She gives him this very cheeky wink <laughs> when she <laughs> steps down from this incredible Sphinx character. There were other writers who were talking about Cleopatra at the time. How different were the depictions of Cleopatra from other authors as compared to Shakespeare's? Yes, my sense is that they were quite varied. But what you do get is that highly sensualized, sexualized persona. What fascinates me is how she's depicted pictorially throughout Western Europe. There was this sort of fashion for aristocratic women in Europe to have their portraits painted as Cleopatra. So they'd have the various tropes like the asp or some aspect of her. And so you get this image of Cleopatra as a white European woman. And strikingly, a lot of productions, uh, I think a lot of versions of her story in the Renaissance are kind of doing a similar thing. And that seems to me really interesting when you think about Shakespeare's depiction, because there was in this time period a, a sort of preoccupation with the dark lady versus the beauty ideal, which was pale, blonde, white, glistening skin, high-born, it's all spoken about in Petrarchan love poetry of the time. And Cleopatra comes along and she's not described in those terms in Shakespeare's text. She's described more as someone, like you said, who is shrewd, who is manipulative, who is overly sexualized, a temptress, but she's also got a tawny front and the way in which Ina Barbus describes her as she's approaching on her barge has all of those sort of tropes of exoticization. And uh, what's curious is that in this time, dark women or women who were sort of darkened metaphorically are women with loose sexual morals. And so Shakespeare's sonnets, he's fascinated again with this notion of a dark lady who's not your typical ideal mistress, who's virtuous and chaste or modest, as Octavia's described. So there's this kind of interesting comparison and contrast that's going on in this period in Shakespeare's plays. He's got dark ladies all over his plays. Uh, so there is this kind of fascination with it. I'm fascinated with how a lot of productions from the 20th century on have just sort of ignored that. And usually you get a white actress playing Cleopatra until very recently. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How did Rome react? Rome reacted very badly to the relationship between Antony and Cleopatra because they suspected what was going to happen. I mean, in just the same way... As we were just talking about, when Cleopatra arrived in Rome and was, Caesar was very clearly under her spell, people feared what that might mean, that maybe Caesar would move the capital of the, of the empire from Rome to Alexandria. They, they thought that Cleopatra was a direct threat then, and that persisted when her affair with Antony began because they thought that she had big political ambitions, that she wanted to make Egypt, which I think she did, at least the equal of Rome. And so you start to see in Roman propaganda, um, a picture being presented of Cleopatra as being this seductress from the East, as you were just saying, the sort of sexualized image of this, this, this vamp um, in the Eastern Mediterranean, seducing the good Roman away from his duty. And it was perceived as a direct threat to the power of Rome, because they saw um, Antony becoming more and more Greek, more and more Hellene, because you know, Cleopatra herself from Macedonian roots. So you get these rude descriptions about, you know, what is Antony doing? He's no longer dressing as a good Roman should. He's dressing in tunics and sandals and frolicking about in the, in the eastern Mediterranean. We sh- he should be uh, in Rome attending to his duty. I mean, he should be in Rome with his Roman wife. And Octavian, his great rival, was able to draw on that to um, increase the feeling against Antony. It was difficult because Antony was so popular in Rome. But it was quite telling that when the actual breach between Roman Egypt came, that Octavian was careful to declare war just against Cleopatra, not against Antony. And Octavian becomes Caesar Augustus. So, in a sense, how did their affair set the stage for the rise of the Roman Empire? Um, it set... The relationship between Cleopatra and Antony set the stage for um, the rise of the Roman Empire because it gave Octavian his chance. Octavian had been declared... Uh, by Caesar to be his heir. But of course there was a direct challenge to Octavian in the existence of the son that Cleopatra had borne to Caesar, her son whom she had called Caesarian, little Caesar, so that there should be no doubt as to who that was. And at one stage Antony made the mistake of declaring publicly that Caesarian was Caesar's legitimate son, a direct challenge to Octavian, which fed into the declaration of war against Egypt and against Antony and Cleopatra, Octavian mobilising the forces of Rome, uh, getting senators and legionaries on his side who were worried about the power that Cleopatra was exercising over Antony. So you have um, Octavian's army arriving in Alexandria, the defeat 
of Cleopatra and Antony, clearing the way now for Octavian, having to do what his uncle Caesar hadn't quite succeeded in doing, even though he was declared a sort of tyrant for 10 years, actually able to take complete power and to establish an empire to fix himself now on the throne as Augustus, as you were saying, the first Roman emperor, beginning uh, the imperial period of Rome. This play, Antony and Cleopatra, is quite different from the Shakespeare plays that preceded it. In those, you have these main protagonists thinking aloud to the audience, psychological dramas. Antony and Cleopatra has a whole cast of named characters, very quick scene changes. What do you think appealed to Shakespeare at that point in his career to address this particular subject? Well, it's really interesting because some historians would argue that, you know, it's early Jacobean, it's around 1606, um, King James came to the throne 1603, he was declaring himself the new Augustus. There was this idea of a kind of rising sort of empire of Britain that was emerging in the Jacobean period. And so there's a kind of interest politically in that, I would say. But also, if you think about theatrically, the architecture of the globe, which is where the play would have been performed first in 1606. It really enables that kind of scene intercutting that happens in the play where you just have continuous scenes. It's got the three door structure, one door, the second door. So it allows that kind of fast paced movement where political drama can happen. And Shakespeare has in other plays, while it's quite different, he has in other plays scenes that that do that, the Capulet Ball scene, for example. Um, there's various other scenes in other plays where this happens. But he's trying to do something which is describe a history that is of epic proportions. And when you're doing that within a kind of five-act structure on a stage with not necessarily realistic staging effects, but the audience's sort of cognitive participation and imagination and just the, the tools that the actors have, then it presents a really dynamic and, uh, I suppose, theatrical challenge for Shakespeare and his company. Um, and the Globe really enabled that kind of high-spectacle, fast-intercutting scene. High-spectacle, fast-intercutting scene. The Globe stage really allows that. We've talked about how Cleopatra was probably quite far removed in terms of her personality from this siren image that has been perpetuated. Even into the 20th century, T.S. Eliot talks about Cleopatra, her devouring sexuality, diminishing her power. Eliot's using language about her darkness, desire, beauty, sensuality and carnality. Not portraying a strong, powerful woman, but this temptress. So in a sense, our image of Cleopatra really has been perpetuated through the ages because of this original story from Plutarch. Do you think that in a modern production you can somehow address some of these other issues that are now coming to light because of historical research that tip the balance in the other direction somewhat? Um, I think that's an interesting question. That would be an excellent challenge for a director because while I don't think Shakespeare is a binary thinker in any way, shape or form, I think you do get these moments in the play where she's having tantrums and there's an anxiety about her an incompetence of her leadership and her capacity to manipulate Antony because the, the main anxiety about a, a sexually powerful woman is that it weakens men and so men aren't able to do their jobs and that somehow that becomes the problem of the woman and so the woman in this play the queen in this play 
is given that problem as well. And it may be up to the actress to say, how do I deal with this thing that's been thrust upon me? And that would be a really interesting challenge for a director and an actor to take on. Because I don't necessarily think that Shakespeare's play releases Cleopatra entirely from some of those depictions. So we have this image of Cleopatra being rolled out in a carpet. We have this very popular image of her being bitten by a poisonous asp. Is there truth in that particular? I think nobody really knows. I mean, I, I think what's important in that part of the story is that somehow Cleopatra found a way to stop herself becoming Octavian's prisoner. Mm -hmm. She didn't want to be taken to Rome and paraded through the streets in chains. And she uh, she wanted. makes a big deal with that. Absolutely. Here we see a woman taking back control mm -hmm. of her destiny. Somehow she found a way to kill herself. And historians dispute whether she really did find a way to have a poisonous snake smuggled in in a basket of figs. Quite difficult. You would have needed quite a large snake with a lot of venom to actually dispose of you that quickly. It's much more likely, I think, that she had some sort of source of poison. She was highly educated, very interested in science. She was said to be an expert in poisons and to have used an array of poisons to actually dispose of enemies at the But don't stages. you think that, that um, the asp is a sort of fantasy again about again, it's because a, it's such it's a, a sexual image. image. Yes. So everybody wants to see the sexual queen. Mm. She killed herself obviously with mm. a phallic image. And as you were saying in all the paintings and depictions in a Renaissance art, mm -hmm. so often the viper. So and also, you know, the, the, the symbol of temptation. Yes. The, you know, the, 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 the archetypal symbol of temptation included in there. So yes, I think in terms of how she actually did kill herself, I think you have to say the jury is out. The important thing is that she, she decided that that was what she needed to do to take back control of herself and possibly as a device to save the lives of her children. She thought maybe that their chances would be better if she were dead. Antony and Cleopatra was not the most popular of Shakespeare's plays and in fact it didn't really get much of a showing as far as I understand it until perhaps even into the 19th, early 20th century. Why do you think audiences might not have taken to it in the way that they did with Shakespeare's other heroes and heroines? Um, it could be because of what we were talking about before. The dramaturgical structure of the play is complex. It's difficult to do in, in a small proscenium arch theatre, really. And I suppose that the sort of epic scale, I mean, you are travelling from all over the place. And it is functioning, it is like Shakespeare's epic poem on stage, to be honest. So I think the challenges of that may perhaps have prevented directors and actors from taking it on regularly. Of course, in, since the 20th century, there's been a lot of productions of this play and more that are still coming. But I think that I think it's the dramaturgical structure that kind of throws people, not necessarily the theme. I think people have universally been interested in this story and of course, film history tells you that as well. And yet Cleopatra's a character's as you say, has inspired countless books and films and plays, even popular songs. What do you think her enduring appeal is? Because we're basically perpetuating a fictional character, aren't we, rather than the real Cleopatra? I think we are interested in women who have power. And we're interested in women who wield that power. It's the same sort of fascination people had for Elizabeth, even exactly. Elizabeth I, long after she died. She had an independent, autonomous way of ruling, which differentiated her from obviously her sister Mary. And I think that fascination, I'm not suggesting that there's Elizabeth I in Shakespeare's Cleopatra. Some people have argued that, and potentially. But I think the fascination for that 
um, you know, for a woman, her sexuality, the interest in Elizabeth I is about her virginity and whether now we talk about was she really a virgin, was she not a virgin? And the interest in Cleopatra is how she used her sexuality to gain mm. power, to retain power. And I think that still fascinates. And mm. when we see women in the public eye, women who are politicians now, the first thing that we do is talk about what she looks like, who she's sleeping with. And it's not necessarily something that we think about when it comes to their male counterparts. Well, exactly. I mean, I think Cleopatra is the only historical character I can think of that's inspired uh, a so-called historical theory, you know, the yes. Cleopatra's nose theory of history, which I think comes from Pascal, saying, well, if she had been, you know, if her nose had been not quite so perfect or so beautiful, people wouldn't have fallen in love mm. with her, and events would not have fallen out as they did. Yes. You know, you never talk about a powerful male political figure yes. in that way. Yeah. But I was very interested what you were saying about Elizabeth I, because mm. I'd not really considered it before. Mm. But there are some direct comparisons in the sense that Elizabeth was very determined to rule without sharing her throne That's right. with a co-ruler, yes. husband king. And Cleopatra twice disposed of brother kings so mm. that she could keep control yes. of her throne. She may have had two important Roman lovers, but they did not share her Egyptian throne. They were never her co-rulers mm. in Egypt. Mm. Diana, you've spent a long time researching the true history, if you like, of Antony and Cleopatra. Do you think it's time now for a film or a play which perhaps puts the record straight? The character of Cleopatra, in so far as we can discern it at this distance in time, is so endlessly intriguing that it would be nice to see a new play with the story all told really perhaps through her eyes, her perspective. Things and her feelings about what she thought of Caesar and of Antony because so often we see Cleopatra through the lens of the male characters in the plays or books that have been written about Cleopatra. Yes, I think, I'm not quite sure which playwright I'd nominate to do this. I've got one or it two thoughts. Yes, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I was struggling to think in whose hands, you know, it would be best placed, but it would be very interesting to see that happen. Yes, I agree. I would love to see a new film because I also think that the Elizabeth Taylor film sort of ruined Cleopatra as well. It plays to, it plays cliche, to all really. the stereotypes and, and the cliches. Luscious, but yes. it's not. <laughs> And gave rise to such films as Carry On Cleo. Yes. <laughs> and, to, and to make a virtue of her ethnicity, to make a virtue of her, the exotic, quote-unquote, exotic nature of her ground, I think would be... And to put her again very much in the context of Egypt, of which she was ruler, independent ruler for 20 years. Because so often what we talk about with Cleopatra is her interaction with Rome. And we immediately see Cleopatra transplanted from Alexandria into Rome or into the arms of a Roman. We don't think of her as a queen of Egypt who related with her people, who presented herself to them as an Egyptian goddess Isis, who participated in all the ancient rites and ceremonies that had been practiced by the pharaohs for generations, and who really took trouble to try and hold Egypt together, to make it a cohesive entity for her own interests, because mm. she, you know, she didn't want anarchy breaking out. She wasn't doing it because she cared particularly about Egyptian tradition. But we see her skill as a ruler in that, and that's often overlooked. Thank you. I look forward to the screenplay from you, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> Farah Karim Cooper, Diana Preston, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Historical fiction. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.